you've been with us the last 10 weeks, you know we've been studying the power of Christ to transform our lives. The way in which he does it is he begins to heal every one of the four clear areas of brokenness in every life. As we saw in the first few weeks, we have a brokenness in our relationship with God. And Jesus begins to heal that. When he saves us, he saves us from the penalty of sin, but his work now is to have us overcome in Christ the power of sin. So our relationship with God is restored. Our relationship with ourselves that is broken is healed by Jesus. And then thirdly, he heals our brokenness in our relationships with others. And that's the brokenness that all of us are very acquainted with. It's the brokenness that shows itself in hatred for others, jealousy, resentment, all of those things. So last week we started looking at uh, that brokenness in a man by the name of Jacob. And today we continue looking at his life and we see how God alone can heal that brokenness, not only in Jacob, but in us. So let's turn to Genesis 33, beginning in verse 1. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, his brother, and 400 men with him. So Jacob divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. He put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the woman and the children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given to your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I, meet, that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please. If I found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Years ago in Germany, there were two men who were friends. They both were aspiring artists. They pursued their passion to the best uh, of their ability, but the problem was that they had to work to make money to buy food. And so they found that they couldn't really do their art the way they wanted to because they had spent all their time trying to make some money to live. 
And finally, they, they decided this, this wasn't working very well. They decided that one of them would pursue his art and the other would spend his time working to support both of them. And so they cast lots. And the lot fell on Albrecht. And so he packed up his things and he moved from Germany to Paris. And within a year, his genius for art was known by everyone. In fact, his paintings were widely regarded. And after three years, he decided that he had accomplished all that he needed to. He was set on his, uh, his way with art. And so he went back to Germany to find his friend Franz. He got there late one night. And he opened the door and he found that the plan could no longer work. He was back to work and allow Franz to pursue his art. But as soon as he saw Franz's hands, he knew he couldn't. He had worked in such difficult circumstances that his, her, his hands were gnarled, his fingers were swollen, he couldn't even hold a paintbrush. But when Albrecht got there and noticed the hands, he also saw his friend doing something that he just stunned him. His friend Franz was sitting at his table. There was a candle on the table, and he had his hands folded like this. And he was praying, as he did every day, for the success of his friend Albrecht. Instantly, Albrecht grabbed his sketch pad and began to sketch the hands. Would you believe it? That became his greatest masterpiece. Albrecht Dürer. Praying hands. It's amazing. One man, Albrecht Dürer, is famous. Everyone who knows art knows him and knows that painting. But his friend Franz? Totally obscure. Absolutely unknown. Except to Albrecht and his family. When I think about that, I think about Jacob. Of all of the people in Scripture, there's one that's known for having fallen asleep and there having a dream and seeing a ladder stretch from earth to heaven. There's one who is renamed Israel, who becomes the progenitor of the nation of Israel. There's the famous Jacob. But what most people miss is the Jacob who is just as famous, but for most of us, very obscure. Most people, when they think of Jacob, think of the covenant. But as we noted last week in the first three chapters of this Genesis account, it's not the covenant that should be our focus. It should be his con. He's a conniving crook. At this point in his life, the Bible says he has fled from his brother because his father, Isaac, has died. And he knows without Isaac, he has no covering, he has no ability to ward off his brother's assaults. And so he flees. And at this point, his most famous deeds are the conning of his brother for the birthright and the conning of his father for the blessing. And the Bible says he comes to a place called Bethel. 
And he falls asleep. And there he sees a ladder stretching from earth to heaven. And on this ladder there are angels ascending and descending. And that's the story we hear in Sunday school as kids. But ladies and gentlemen, there is someone at that place greater than Jacob, greater than all of those angels. He's at the top of the ladder. The Bible says the Lord stands there, and the Lord pronounces a blessing on Jacob that is eerily analogous to the blessing of God on Jacob's grandfather in Genesis chapter 12 when God blesses Abraham. And the Bible says in the morning when he wakes up, the Bible says Jacob lifts up his feet and goes on his way. And in English, we would write, read right over those words, lifts up his feet. But you know what it means? It literally means in Hebrew, he skips away from that place. Meaning what? Meaning he is ecstatic. Why? Because he believes that that vision, that dream that he's just had, is God's endorsement of everything he's done. In other words, he believes that God's on his side. He could be the next presidential press secretary. He believes that God helps those who help themselves. He believes that God is on his side. He's endorsing all of his conniving. He thinks the dream is a signal that God is with him no matter what he does. And so he skips away. Have you ever known anybody like that? Living a life of fraud and yet believing that God is blessing him because of all that he sees. But God isn't through with Jacob. If the story were to end there, we might think that God helps those who help themselves, but thank God it doesn't end there. God cares too much for Jacob to leave him in his own brokenness. So let's dig in. First of all, notice, if you will, the prelude. Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God's face, God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Years ago in England, there was a man by the name of William Hone who was an enemy of the church. He wrote blasphemous parodies regarding all the creeds. He satirized the catechisms and the clergy. The church hated Hone, and he hated the church. You know where it all started for him? At home. Hone was honed at home. You see, his father was a Calvinist, a rugged Calvinist who hated Arminians, including John Wesley. He spoke against Wesley almost every day. 
And when William Hone was a young child, he heard this. And when his parents sent him to grammar school, they didn't know that the headmistress of the school was an Arminian. And so the story goes that when he's in the fourth grade, the headmistress ma- head gets sick, sick unto death. And she's on her deathbed, and she asks someone to bring little William to her bedside. And so William gets there. He's speaking quietly with his headmistress. And all at once, he says, a, another person comes in. And he, he writes about it this way. There entering the room was a venerable old man with silver hair hanging down on his shoulders. His complexion was fresh and placid. His smile was sweet. He seemed to have a countenance of an angel. And he ministered to the lady. He spoke comforting words to her, and then he knelt down by her bedside and prayed for her healing. And when he got up from his knees and began to walk out of the room, he laid his hand on my head, and he said, God bless you, my son. May he make you a good man. And Hone said, instantly, even though I was young, I knew two things, that I never would forget this man and that my father was full of crap. He says something else. (laughs) And so is my father's church. And for decades, as soon as he began to be literary, he began to write against the Christian faith, against Calvinists, against the church. But that's not the end of the story. One day he said it all changed. He describes it this way. Suddenly I saw what seemed to me to be the face of God. And in that instant I received divine grace. It washed over me. He turned my hatred into love. And from that day on I determined to spend the rest of my life trying to undo everything I had done. He wrote this poem. He sent it all over Britain. The proudest heart that ever beat, he has subdued in me. The wildest will that ever rose to scam thy cause or aid thy foes is quelled, my God, by thee. Now think of Jacob. He's conned his brother. He's conned his father. He flees from the land of Canaan. He goes to his uncle Laban's house, and for 14 years, his uncle Laban cons him. And then after 14 years, Jacob gets even. The Bible says he leaves Laban and his household, and he takes with him Laban's two daughters, all of the children, the servants, and a large portion of the best of Laban's fields. Now think of this. This guy is a train wreck. Every significant relationship in his life, with his father, with his brother, with his uncle, 
demonstrate one thing, brokenness. So what does he do? He gets down on his knees and he prays that God will help him get back to the land of Canaan. Now the problem with going back is he knows that he has to pass through the land of his brother Esau. And he knows his brother is powerful. His brother hates him. He knows that his brother has every reason to hate him. And so he prays and he asks the Lord for help. He knows that if he's ever going to get back home, he's going to need help. The help of God. And so he gets off his knees, stops his prayer, and he devises a scheme. He determines that he'll send his servants and a lot of the flock and his wives and his children ahead of him. For what reason? So that if his brother really is ticked off, he'll take it out on them and not on him. He is willing to sacrifice everything in his life to save his own skin. You see, Jacob is a heel. He's a conniving jerk. All he can think about is is himself, and he's living up to his name. With every passing paragraph, you see the depth of his brokenness. And if that were the end of the story, I could say to you, I've seen it a hundred times. I have seen scores of people living in brokenness. And their brokenness leads always to one thing, carnage everywhere they go. You've seen it too. You've seen people just like him living in his brokenness. And if they have a sense of God at all, they want God to help them do what they want to do. But would you believe it? God answers his prayer. He answers it in a way that Jacob never intended. God answers his prayer in a way Jacob could never have fathomed. That brings us to our next point, his plan. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Do you see what happens? He's changed his plan. His plan was to send everybody ahead of him so he'd save his own skin. But something happens to him. At a place called Peniel, where God changes the plan. Now, what could possibly have caused Jacob the conniver to put himself on the line? Only God can do that. The Bible says on the same day that he prays and he connives and he devises the plan, on that same day, when the nightfall comes, God sends a messenger to break Jacob. The Bible says they wrestle all night. And when dawn breaks, the angel touches the socket of Jacob's hip 
and puts it out of joint. And for the rest of his life, Jacob walks with a limp. For the rest of his life, God has broken him in his hip, so his walk is altered. But God's done far more than that. Jacob says, I've seen the face of God, and yet my life has been delivered. In other words, I've conned my brother, I've conned my father, I've conned my uncle, but I can't con God. I've seen God face to face, and yet he allows me to live. You see, Jacob is getting it. God doesn't owe him anything but a quick death. But he delivers him instead. And notice the extent of his deliverance. The Bible says he goes on ahead of everyone else. Now in Jacob's day, there's only one person who would bow down seven times, and that was the servant of a king. The Bible says he bows down seven times before his brother Esau. He's saying, in effect, you are my king, and I am your servant. Now, Jacob knows the promise. He knows that God has promised that Esau will serve him. The older will serve the younger. So why does he bow down to the older? Because he suddenly realizes that the promise is bigger than Isaac and Jacob, than Esau and Jacob. The promise is bigger than an older brother and a younger brother. The promise is that the older Jacob will serve the younger Jacob. The old Jacob will serve the young Jacob. Do you see it? By bowing down to his brothers seven times, what Jacob is really doing is bowing down before God, who that night had broken the old Jacob and launched the new man, Israel. Third, notice the present. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I meet, met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. Now notice that Esau is the first to speak. Etiquette demanded it. When you were in the presence of a Lord or a master or a king, you never spoke unless your sovereign spoke first. And so Esau says, what is all this? And when Jacob hears that, he says to his brother, this is a blessing for you from my hand. In fact, the word he uses there, blessing or present in the NIV, is exactly the same word that his older brother Esau had said when he recognized when his father blessed Jacob instead of Esau, he said he's stolen my blessing." He's stolen my present. So think about it. 
The grace of God is so great in Jacob's life that he is able to give the blessing back to his brother. By the law, he doesn't need to do it. By law, Jacob is the rightful heir apparent. He's got the birthright and the blessing. But when God's grace overpowers him, he turns him from a grabber, from a grasper, to a giver. He's willing to give it all back. Ladies and gentlemen, this is radical transformation. This is a 180 degree difference. And only God can do it. And then fourth, notice the perception. Jacob said, no, please. If I found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Now notice, there is nothing about Esau that resembles God. He's left the land of God. He's left Canaan. He's married foreigner women. He has no concern for the things of God. There's no sense of spiritual discernment in Esau. Yet when Jacob is wrestled by the angel of God, he says about that wrestling match at that place, I have seen the face of God, and now he says about his brother, I see his face in you. You say, how can he say it? Because when he sees his brother, all he can remember is what God looks like. You see, everything now in his life involves his new relationship with God. Somebody has said, when you're overwhelmed by the grace of God, everyone you meet and every relationship you have become a stage on which you act out the drama of your encounter with God. That's what Jacob means. He can see God in his brother. That's what Jesus means when he says, if you do it under the least of these, my brothers, you do it under me. You see, when God breaks him, he remakes him. And all Jacob can see in Esau is the one he loves and desires to serve. For to the new Jacob, Esau looks like God. One of the great privileges of my life was to meet Corey Ten Boom, spend a few hours with her, the Dutch woman who was taken with her sister to Ravensbrück, German concentration camp. Her sister died there. Her parents didn't get to the camp. They went to another place, and they both died. Their 
her parents did in a matter of weeks. In 1947, Corey Ten Boom was invited to come to Munich to speak in a church. She'd been out of the concentration camp for about two and a half years. Munich was 500 miles from Ravensbrück, the place where her sister died. And so this German pastor invited Corey to come and speak. And that night, the church was packed. And she got up and she began to speak about the grace of God. How God changes things. How Jesus Christ can radically transform a life. And in that church that night, she said this in the midst of her talk. She said, through Jesus Christ, if we confess our sins to God, He's not only faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us, but He also takes our sins and He casts them into the depth of the sea and He posts a sign, no fishing. And when, he, when she finishes, there are no questions. For the packed church began to empty out. All of these broken Christians full of guilt. Except for one man. She said, I noticed him as he walked toward me. And when he got about five feet from me, I recognized him. He was the cruelest guard at Ravensbrook. And he held out his hand. And he said to me, fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know, as you say, that all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. Corey said he stood there with his hand out. I didn't know what to do. Instantly, I could tell he didn't recognize me. How could he? he? There were thousands of women through that camp, but I knew him. I'd looked into his eyes many times. It was the same man. And then he continued, you mentioned Ravensbrook. I was a guard there, but I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me. He's forgiven me for all the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips, Fraulein. Will you forgive me? Corey said, I couldn't speak. It probably was only seconds, but it seemed to be hours to me. I, whose sins had been forgiven again and again and again, couldn't forgive him. All I could think of was Betsy and how he had beat her. In fact, he beat her the last time. How could I ever forgive him? Nothing could erase the memory of her slow, painful death. 
I'd gone back to Holland, and I'd opened up a house for scores of victims of Nazi brutality. I saw the extent of their brokenness. So there I stood in the grip of a cold, lifeless heart. I know what Jesus taught. I know that forgiveness is not an emotion, it's an act of will. I know that to forgive is a function of a heart regardless of temperature. And so I silently prayed, Lord Jesus, help me, help me, help me. I can lift my hand, I can do that much, but you have to supply the feeling. She said, so I lifted my hand woodenly. Mechanically, I reached out to his hand, and as soon as I touched his hand, something incredible happened. I felt a surge. It was a current that flowed from my shoulder. It raced down my arm into my fingertips. And then this healing warmth began to flood through my whole body, and I began to cry, and I said to him, I forgive you, my brother. I forgive you with all my heart. And we stood there, my hand in his, then my arms around him and his arms around me. And Corey says, I can never totally explain what happened there. All I can tell you is I've never felt the love of God as intensely as I did on that night. It wasn't my love. It was God's love flowing through me to him and back to me. How is it that God can heal our broken relationships with others? Just like that. That's how he did it in Munich. That's how he did it at Peniel. That's how he does it everywhere. How about in your heart? Are you seeing Christ in every one of your Esau's? And are you acting on it? Or are you still living with your own brokenness? Jesus Christ transforms lives and relationships. And he does it just like that. Think about that. Amen.